0: We're going to read in Matthew 25, and this is um, probably a well-known part of Jesus' teaching on the final judgment. Matthew 25, verse 31 through 46. This morning we're going to be uh, we're talking about hell. We're going to look at, uh, at hell, and, and in this story there's a little bit of a, an understanding of how, how Jesus describes it. So read along with me from verse 31. When a son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he'll separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? Then you will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so we see Jesus teaching there and there's a number of ways that he teaches there, of course, a number of things that we can pull out of that scripture. But for today, we want to we understand a little bit about even how Jesus describes hell and that place that those that, that aren't, um, don't belong to him. And he says earlier, he says to um, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom Prepared for you, those that God has blessed and those that that are living for Him will go, and those that aren't and don't choose to live with Him won't go. And before we begin, it's a subject that's really interesting. Well, it's really interesting to talk about, but really difficult to talk about because there are so many uh, different ways to look at it. Um, and I would encourage you, as I have been lately, to do some reading. Um, if you get a chance, and if you're curious, because there are some great things that you can understand and learn. But to begin, we just to as a as a catch up. We're in a, a series we're calling Uniquely Reformed. We're looking at a few things and a, and understanding a little bit about uh, the doctrines that that we that we uh, that we have within our Reformed um, denomination. Uh, perhaps the understandings that we have. And also, even we're going to be looking at a few practices, the way that we might practice things in our denomination that potentially aren't distinct in our denomination. But they're not all just in our denomination. Many of them are shared by others as well. And the five points of Calvinism are probably the best-known points of distinction, aren't they? Um, They're understood by that acrostic, you know, and I I reminded us a, a week or two back on that that tulip, that, that good old Dutch flower, I'm, I'm sure the Dutch people spent a long time trying to figure out how they could get their flower into the five points of Calvinism. And they kind of did. And we know that it's tulip in its um, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. And we've already looked at total depravity. We looked at the fact that, that we are not able to, um, to save ourselves, that, that, that we're corrupted by nature. We're born into a corrupt world. We're corrupted by nature. And we're utterly dependent on God to reach in and to save us. That we can do good things, but even our good things don't come from a, a good place. And we looked at total depravity. And we looked at, um, and then we, we kind of messed around with the acrostic a little bit and we looked at irresistible grace. That whilst, we, whilst God reaches out with His grace, we, we resist it and we can resist it and we push against it. But God ultimately reaches, pushes against that and reaches us with His irresistible or effectual grace that it will have the effect that it's intended to have on us. And before we go on to look at the U and the L and the P, um, also things that we'd be good to read up about, I wanted to look at another doctrine and understanding um, that I think we need to grasp. I wanted to look at the the doctrine or the understanding of hell. And I think it will help us understand or help us a little bit as a building block to understand a little bit more of the rest of Tula. The doctrine of hell... What about hell? Let's talk about how Why do we need to talk about it? It's a hard subject. It's an unpopular subject. um, Let alone um, a concept that makes for a happy conversation around the water cooler at work or in the tea room. Or You know, not many people just want to have a chat about hell or, or talk about that a little bit or have a lovely conversation while you're having dinner with your friends. No one, or not many, like to preach on it because it's not a fun sermon to chat about at coffee afterwards. It's not a fun sermon to, um, uh, to, uh, to talk about. But we know deep down that it's there in the Word. So we don't really like to talk a lot about it in church. We don't really like to preach a lot about it. But we know it's there. And, and I think perhaps what comes to mind is the whole carrot and stick thing, isn't it? It's much easier to to preach the carrot and and the lovely things and the things that... It's it's harder to seemingly preach the stick. But we're going to have a go, and, and I will in no way be able to cover this completely, or perhaps even the best way. But I hope that by the end of this, we will see that it's a doctrine of love and comfort. It really is. In some research... Over 60% of Australians expect that they're going to heaven when they die. When they did some research, they, they found that over, just over 60% of, of Australians felt like when they die, they're going to go to heaven. Yet, less than 1% think that they might go to hell. I'm not sure what's in between or how that works. But 60%, or more than 60% believe that they're going to go to heaven. Less than 1% think they're going to go to hell. And there are plenty of people and, you know, even Christians who don't believe in the Bible's teaching on eternal punishment or everlasting punishment. And even those who do uh, find it an unpopular concept and, and one to keep a little bit remote. You remember, like I said, we don't really want to talk about it too much. But we're going to see that it is an important part of the Christian faith. might not be a great topic at a barbie, and it might be uncomfortable, and Frankly, it might be something we'd rather not talk about. You know, and that's why let's talk about love, because love wins, right? God is love, and that is so much easier to talk about. The problem is that Jesus taught more about hell than all of the other Bible authors together. And he used some pretty graphic language, too, didn't he? In our reading, Jesus talks about eternal fire and punishment as the destination of those who rejected God. And we see that in in, in our reading in in verse 41 where he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in 46 at the end of our reading, And these will go away into eternal punishment. He he talks about it as being an eternal place of punishment, of fire, and really graphic language. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 22 he says this, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. There it is again, is that that fire. He says of those who give giving to sin will be in danger of the fire of hell. And in Mark 9, he uses the same word. And the word... Hell. That's translated hell in, in in all of those scriptures, is actually the old word Gehenna, which is a, which in the in the listener's mind, it was actually an actual place. It was a valley where piles of garbage were burnt daily, but also any corpses without families or couldn't be identified or didn't want to be claimed by families would be burnt and buried there. And so it was this place in in the people's mind that Gehenna was a place of 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 torment, of ultimate punishment. And the story goes that um, there would be worms there, or they would call them worms, or maggots, for for instance, and and they would feast on the bodies that were there. And um, science will tell you, or or whatever that science is, that that once there's nothing left to eat, the worm dies. And then you'll see somewhere in Scripture where where God calls uh, hell a place where the worms do not die. And the inference is, of course, if the worms do not die, there must still be something there to eat. So it's eternal that goes on and on and on. Jesus constantly depicted hell as a painful fire and an outer darkness. Even just before the verse before our reading, uh, in verse 30 of chapter 25, it says, "...and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." So this is sounding really bad, but this is the language that Jesus is using. This is what he's talking about when he talks about hell. Something that's very real, a place of an unimaginable, terrible misery and unhappiness. So it makes you think that if Jesus, the one who loves us and, and is a source of that grace, that irresistible grace, if he spoke more about hell in this way than anyone else, it must be a crucial truth. It must be something that we have to allow to be part of our understanding. So what is hell, actually? Is it a literal fire pit that can't be escaped? Is it a literal place where ghouls wander about gnashing their teeth and screaming in pain? Well, most commentators and theologians believe that these images are probably metaphorical. So right about now, in all of your lounge rooms, I hear this, I sense this collective, phew, But before you relax, most commentators would say, those are probably metaphors, but it's actually probably worse. Jonathan Edwards was a a great preacher. I have a quote here that you can read. And he said, the biblical language for hell is symbolic. But, he added, when metaphors are used in scripture about spiritual things, they fall short of the literal truth. To say that the scriptural image of hellfire is not wholly literal, is of no comfort whatsoever. The reality will be far worse than the image. What, then, are the fire and darkness symbols for? They are vivid ways to describe what happens when we lose the presence of God. Darkness refers to the isolation and fire, to the disintegration of being separated from God. Away from the favour and face of God, we literally, horrifically and endlessly fall apart. So far, this is a really encouraging message, right? You see, the ultimate separation we can experience from God is if or when He says, depart from me. And we know that scripture is, depart from me, I never knew. you." The ultimate separation that we can experience from God is when He says, depart from me. And why is that um, the ultimate separation? Because that's not what we were created to walk with, to be with God, to enjoy His presence in the Garden of Eden, to know His power and, and, and the source of His power in us that supports us and that sustains us in life. That's what we were created for. We were created to, to be with God, not just because it's cool to be with Him, but because that's our source. That's, that's the, the, His power that supports us. It's the, we were created to enjoy Him and to be with Him. But sin, our sin, destroyed and continues to destroy that. And it separates us from God. And left to go on, that separation is hell. It's eternity away from the presence of God. It's eternity away from the presence of His love. It's eternity away from the presence of His power and His grace. Forever. Apart from the source of life. And when I say life, I don't just mean breath, breathing. Life, all that comes with it. Fellowship, nearness, power, joy. Left to go on. If our sin is left to go on, that creates a separation that then is hell. And this is important because it shows us the seriousness and the danger of living for ourselves and rejecting God endlessly. As humans, we want to actively go our own way. I mean, I do, and I'm guessing you see that in yourself as well. We want to go our own way. We want to have our own say. We want to be our own authority. We want to set our own standards. And, and, and I can think of myself personally, and I can put myself in all of those, and, and you probably can as well, but have a look at our world. Have a look at the, the different life spheres of education, um, medicine, uh, politics, or, or whatever you can think of. This is reflected. We, we want to go our own way. We don't want to live to a standard that, that God might have set for us as a society. We want to have our own say. We want to be our own authority. We want to do what we want, and we want to set the standards because we want independence we want to go our own way you know Isaiah back in Isaiah um, 53 verse 6 and we know that that verse and you know, just the first part of the verse he says all we like sheep have gone astray we've turned everyone to his own way we just want to live for ourselves, and and so we we keep wanting to choose To not have God in our lives. We make something other than God, and it could be me or it could be something else. We make something other than God, the ultimate in our lives. And if that goes on forever, that leads to hell separation. So what is hell then? Hell is my sin and bad habits perhaps separating me from God forever. It's God actively giving us up to what we have freely chosen, that is, to go our own way, to be the master of our own destiny or the the captain of our own soul, to get away from his control. It's God, hell, is God banishing us to the place that we've desperately tried to get to all of our lives. J.I. Packer uh, writes a little bit about this. And he says this, he says, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshipping Him, or without God forever, worshipping themselves. And I said, um, it's our sin and it's our bad habits. And the reason I said our bad habits are our, our norms is because you know, sometimes we see things as, well, I'm not that bad. You know, there's a couple of little sins in my life. They're little things that don't have this humongous effect, and so perhaps they don't need the attention that, that, uh, and perhaps they're not a threat. They don't they're threaten me. That maybe they are not a threat to my connection with God, or maybe they don't threaten to separate me. C.S. Lewis said this, and this is an interesting thing. He was talking about hell. And he was talking about what we might see see as small sins or bad habits. He said, "'Christianity asserts that we are going to go on forever, and that must be either true or false. Now there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 80 years or so, but which I had better bother about if I'm going to go on living forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy is getting worse.' so gradually that the increase in my lifetime wouldn't be very noticeable, but I might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is, precisely, is the precisely correct technical term for it. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're so distinct from it, you might even criticise it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer do so. Then there would be no you left to criticise or even to enjoy the mood, but just the grumble itself going on and on forever like a machine. He concludes, So it's not a question of whether God sends us, quote-unquote, to hell. Every one of us, there's something growing up which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. Makes you think, doesn't it? I start thinking about all my bad habits and the things that I do. I think, my goodness, if I had to deal with me for a million years, I think, hmm, I agree with him. So hell is a freely chosen identity based on something else besides God going on forever. People, including Christians, struggle with or reject the doctrine of hell even because they picture that they have a picture that there's this God who throws people into hell. And he sort of throws them into a pit, doesn't he? And they're clawing up the sides and they're clambering up the sides saying, Please, no, let me out, let me out, let me out. And God's saying, No, it's too late now. You know, it's hell for you. And that's the kind of image that we can sometimes have. And maybe it's a childlike image. But, and as adults, we'd never admit it like that. But that's the image that can sometimes fall, isn't it? And so when we struggle, when people struggle, they question, Why would God send or destine someone to hell? Why wouldn't he just step in? Okay, they're rebellious and they're sinful and, and they keep doing the wrong thing. Why doesn't he just step in? He's all powerful, right? Why does not he just step in and stop it? Couldn't God just intervene? Isn't there a more loving way in that same discussion on hell, C.S. Lewis, in answering a, a person like that, He would ask a question. He would say, So what are you asking God to do? To wipe out past sins and at all costs give them a fresh start? He did on Calvary. To forgive them? But they're not asking for forgiveness. To leave them alone? That's what hell is. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. But wait, we're all sinful, right? We all have bad habits. You could just ask my wife if you wanted to know mine. And you're probably thinking, this is all bad news so far. This is not a really encouraging message. Because honestly, I can identify with so much that we've just talked about. I can, and I'm, I'm guessing many of you can as well. How could knowing this doctrine, how could... Knowing this about hell, knowing that it's real, knowing that it's separation, knowing that I choose for it and that, that I work my I work my way towards there, how can knowing this be a comfort? How could this be a message of love? Well, it is all real. What Jesus said is all real. But because through God, because of God's intervention in our lives we need not experience hell." You might say, what? How so? We know that God sent His Son Jesus to break through our bad choices, break through our sin, break through that separation we're working so hard to maintain. Hell would be suffered by Jesus instead of us. Jesus experienced hell for us. All of those things that he described, all of the, the ways and the, the graphic language, Jesus experienced that for us. He suffered on the cross. And we cannot know how much Jesus loves us unless we see how much Jesus suffered, what he actually experienced. When we understand what Jesus, how Jesus describes hell and how, and, and how, how horrible it is, That's what he actually experienced. And unless we believe in hell, unless we understand it, we will never know how much he loved us. Unless we know and understand what hell is, we'll never appreciate what he actually went through for us. We'll never know how much he values us. Our heart will never know unless we believe in hell. So then why did Jesus Christ speak more about hell than anybody else in the Bible? Because on the cross, He took it. He knew what hell would be. There's that line in the Apostles' Creed, and it says, He descended into hell. And you might think, well, what does that mean? Separation from the Father. That ultimate separation. He experienced the separation that we should experience. When He said, my God, my God, why... Have you forsaken me? He experienced hell. Tim Keller says this. He said, This makes emotional sense when we consider the relationship that Jesus lost. If a mild acquaintance denounces you and rejects you, well, that hurts. If a good friend does the same, it hurts far worse. However, if your spouse walks out on you and saying, I never want to see you again, that's more devastating still. The longer, deeper and more intimate the relationship the more torturous is any separation. But the son's relationship with the father was beginningless and infinitely greater than the most infinite, uh, intimate and passionate human relationship. When Jesus was cut off from God, he went to the deepest pit and the most powerful furnace beyond all imagining. He experienced the full wrath of the father and he did it voluntarily voluntarily for us I said that the doctrine of hell could express love and comfort and encouragement love a loving God I talk to people who <clears throat> that say but that's not a loving God is it That's how could that be a loving God I can't believe in, believe in or much less love a God that would pour out infinite suffering on anyone thinking of his own son, on anyone else for someone else's sin. Or to make someone... I can't believe or, in or love a God that would make someone else bear the punishment for someone else's sin. The God that I would want to believe in, my God, is more loving than that. But if we say that, we, we misunderstand God and the cross. We don't get what happened on the cross. Because on the cross it was God... God himself incarnated as Jesus took the punishment. He didn't pour it out on someone else. He didn't pour it out on some um, willing third party or suffering third party. It was him. And that's a loving God. Jesus suffered infinitely more than any human soul in eternal hell. And yet he looks at us and he says... It was worth it. What could make us feel more loved and more valued than that? Unless we understand the concept of hell, unless we understand what Jesus went through for us, we will never know the extent of love that he has for us. Our saviour waded through hell itself rather than lose us. No other saviour ever depicted in any other religion has loved at that cost or at such a cost. And this kind of love leads us, this, when we understand this kind of love, and hell helps us to understand it, it leads us to a sense of wonder and joy. It leads me to surrender myself uh, and, and all my resistance and the way that I want to resist His grace. You know, I was thinking this week that, that old song, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Only when you know that kind of love can you say, here am I, Lord. Only through the cross could our separation from God be removed. And we will spend all eternity loving and praising God for what he's done. And in comforting and encouraging, is it, is it comforting and encouraging to know about hell? Well, think about it. Our debt for sin is so great that we can never pay it off. And we were destined for our hell, our separation, to stretch on for eternity, Forever. That was the judgment over us, over me, over you. And I I, and, and you couldn't fix it. There's nothing that we could do to fix it. So what would satisfy the debt? Who, if not me, could rescue me from that separation from God? Only God himself could do that. So then, if that judgment is there, what would justice look like? Calvary. And what did Jesus say at Calvary? It is finished. How profound. It's finished. What he felt on the cross was far worse, far deeper than all of our deserved hells put together. And it was enough. That's good news. Back to our Isaiah verse. If we go back to our Isaiah verse when I read that, you know, each of us like sheep have gone astray. Let's read around that verses 5 and 6. But he was, <clears throat> he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds <clears throat> we're healed. That's a lot of good news there in one Verse. And all we, like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That debt, that, that, that judgment, the Lord laid that on him. And in verse 10 and 11 in the same chapter, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. You see, it's not with pleasure that God did it. Out of the anguish of his soul, his own son, that separation, he experienced the separation as well. But he shall see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It was enough. What Jesus did on the cross was enough. He said it's finished and it truly was finished. God was satisfied and it is finished. Justice was exacted. Atonement was made for you and I by God. The power of hell, wielded by the enemy over us, through sin, was crushed and completely broken. How encouraging. What a comfort. So is the doctrine of hell important? Is hell a thing? Is it real? Yes. If it isn't, then we don't need the cross. We don't need a saviour to love us. And Jesus' work on the cross becomes null and void. If it is, and it is, then how amazing is that love? How great is that desire that the Father has, has to reach out to us with his irresistible grace, to keep pushing through when we resist and we push against him. How, how wonderful it is that he reaches through and breaks through with his irresistible grace, breaks through our depravity, the, the, our total unwillingness or inability to respond to him. How amazing is it that he reaches through with that grace so that we can be with him forever in glory. And he is worthy of glory because even the powers of hell itself were crushed by him you know we might we might struggle as humans to understand and how and why God works in the way that he does and preparing this message that's what came to my mind and, and does often his sovereign work doesn't always make sense from a middle-class, Western mindset. And there are so many questions to grapple with around this doctrine and, and some of the other things that we're looking at. You know, around this doctrine, there's so many questions that you might... Why isn't it offered to all? Won't we all avoid hell ultimately? Won't God ultimately override us all and just save everyone? You know, universalism is, is such a... I wish, I'd love to believe in that, because it's nice. Why not God just override everything and say, oh, you know what, heck, I love you all. Again, there's some great reading you can do around this, and it's not unreasonable. It would not be unreasonable. It's not unreasonable to grapple with some of these concepts that we've talked about. And even as we go ahead in some of the others, like unconditional um, election and, and um, limited atonement and things. It's not unreasonable to grapple with some of those things. You know, and just full disclosure, I sit in my office and I grapple heaps. Let me just share something with you. And This week as I prepared and, and as I'm thinking about the topics coming up and I've been preparing, I grappled. I questioned and and I struggled to to nail down and to explain and to make sense of all the detail and and try to figure out how this all works, you know, and it's always bad when as a human you start saying, I'm trying to figure out God, you know you're not on a good path there. You know, but here I am trying to imagine counterpoints, trying to imagine when I'm talking about hell or unconditional election or some of those things and people are going to have counterpoints and... And I'm trying to wonder how I would defend things, even defend it for myself. And I couldn't. And it was disturbing. And then I sensed God say this. And as I was praying, and I probably wasn't even praying fervently like I probably should be. And I sensed God saying, you may not get all this. You may not understand everything and you won't. You might feel the need to control or explain everything. You might feel frustrated and like your understanding is incomplete. He's talking to me now. You might feel your understanding is incomplete. It is. You might feel the need to understand, explain, and defend what I don't seem to do. Where in your eyes, I don't seem just or loving. This is what he said, but while you're doing that, while you're focused on that, you might miss and be robbed of the joy and the wonder of the things that I have done, the things that I do do in your life, how I do love you. Allow your heart to see that and surrender the rest. Give thanks for what you do see, what I do do, what I have already done for you. Have joy for what and who you see in my word and teach that to yourself and teach that to others. All the rest, that's mine to deal with. Now, I'd like to say that after all that, it was a breeze. Come easy. But it's a process, as I'm sure it is for all of us. However, I believe that God spoke to me this week through the Holy Spirit. And my prayer is that I will continue to give glory to God when I get it and even when I don't. And I pray the same thing for us all. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we just want to thank you for how complete your work in our life is. Every detail. Every way that we could perhaps confound your work. Every way that we could cross it, everything that we could do to get in the way, you've thought of and you've taken care of. Your justice isn't weak. Your justice isn't not there anymore. It's front and centre. It surely is. And separation from you is something that's real. But you made a way for that, not to have to be the end for us. And we want to thank you for that. We want to thank you for your love. Your comfort and the encouragement that it gives us to know. heading The hell that we're heading for, that separation from you. That was cut across by the work of Jesus on the cross. And we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for the things that you do do in our lives, the, the wonderful things that we do see. And Lord, I confess that, that sometimes I, am, I'm spending, I spend a whole lot more time worrying about the, 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 few, the, the few percentage of things that I don't understand and allowing that to steal away the joy of the things that I do understand, the things that you have done, the way I do see you work. Lord, I want to glorify you and give you thanks for those things. I want to be able to glorify You when I get it, when I understand it, when it all makes sense and it seems amazing and even those times when it doesn't. And even that, I can do because of what You did, Jesus, on the cross. And I thank You for that. Lord, as we celebrate Lord's Supper now, we pray, I pray that that would be the background, the understanding, that we recognize that when we celebrate your death and resurrection, then we, when we acknowledge what you went through and, and, and how you said it's finished, when we acknowledge that, Lord, that we would just want to celebrate and we would want to just acknowledge that even though we weren't worthy, we can celebrate this with abandon and abundance because of your great love. That you remind us again and again of your love for us. We want to thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.